Welcome to the Thriller Fiction Podcast, your source for gripping and twisty stories in a serialized format. And now, here's your host, Jim Heskett. Here we go, one more time, with feeling. Let's do it for real this time. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. No, you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. That's cool. I'm just a guy. I'm just Jim Heskett. I'm the author of these uh, stories you've been hearing. And today, we're not going to read a short story like we have been for the first three episodes of the show. We're actually going to read the first chapter of a novel, of a mystery slash thriller slash mostly mystery novel I wrote called Reagan's Ashes. This is a novel. This was my first published novel. Not the first novel I wrote, but definitely the first novel that I published in 2015, I think. Yeah. Oh, how has it been that long? Yeah, I guess it has. Anyway, this was, um, this was kind of a heartfelt thriller mystery um, about a young woman whose father has died, and she embarks on a mission into Rocky Mountain National Park to, um, to spread his ashes in a lake that um, is meaningful to both of them. But there are some other people involved in the situation who might have bad intentions. And what seems like a simple and cathartic hike becomes actually a very dangerous race against time. So this is compared to some of my later stuff. This one is a little slower, especially in the beginning. I mean, of course, it's a Jim Heskett novel. So at the end, all these various threads come together and it, uh, it ascends into a crescendo of intensity. That's how all my books are. Um but so we're going to read the first chapter in this episode, and then next week we're going to read the second chapter. And so this is uh, read by Kate Fisher's wonderful narrator. As far as I know, she's retired from the narrating game. Um, but I think she did a great job here of capturing the spirit. And so I'm going to turn this loose to her, uh, and then I will see you guys. Well, wait, first of all, if you like the stuff that you've been hearing so far, if you like the short stories that we've done so far, you can actually get those. They're from the collections called Stories to Read While Driving and More Stories to Read While Driving. And if you just go to jimeska.com forward slash books and then you scroll through all the um, the books there, you might have to click a button to go to the next page, um, a page or two, depending on how many there are there, um, depending on when you're listening to this. But if you like those short stories and you want to buy the collections, they're super cheap. So ebook versions are like three dollars, and paperback they're they're not very much either because they're relatively short. They're like seven or eight bucks in paperback. I mean, come on, they're practically free. You know, I mean, they're literally not free, but they're practically free. Anyway, if you like that, and if you like this story, it's called Reagan's Ashes, and you can also go to jimheskett.com forward slash books to see that and um, get the ebook version of Reagan's Ashes is also very cheap. It's affordable, uh, and um, some people quite like it. I think it's pretty good, you know. Anyway, <laughs> here's Kate Fisher with the first chapter of Reagan's Ashes. Monday, Chapter 1, 11 o'clock a.m. Reagan Darby swept a hand along the silky surface of an empty coffin. Dad's memorial service left her as hollow and pointless as the just-for-show container before her. Mitchell Darby's actual remains dwelled in a small cardboard box, his ash and bone fragments waiting to be transferred into the urn he'd owned for years. 
Reagan should have been on a trip to New Orleans with her boyfriend. Instead, she was in Denver at a memorial service for a man who'd been exactly twice her age when he died. He took care of his body, as far as she knew. Made no sense. Wasn't right to go out this way. Mitchell Darby was now hidden away in a box on a shelf. Reagan Darby stood before a shell of a thing, not an actual thing. Schrodinger's coffin. She peeked at Spoon, her fair-haired Australian boyfriend, as he sat among the onlookers in wooden pews. The pair of crutches resting next to him clashed with his charcoal-colored suit. He offered her a feeble smile, and while she appreciated the effort, she couldn't muster one in return. Spoon's smile reminded her of Dad's smile. She could never see that again. In time, the memory of the smile would fade, and that's what twisted the vice grip of grief in her stomach. The lid of the casket remained closed to hide the emptiness. Why was it even here? What was the point of all this? All these people with faces pulled toward the floor, tears streaking reddened cheeks as they mourned a wooden box? Orange began to flare as the anger built up inside her. Empty box. Just an empty box. He deserved better than an empty box. Before rage overtook her, she fled from the raised platform, down the carpeted steps, and through the aisles. Heads turned to watch her flight. She escaped out the front door, a gust of stark Colorado air stinging her nostrils. After living in Texas the last few years, she'd become ill-adjusted to both the altitude and abject dryness of her home state. She slid onto the steps, staring at her hands. Lightheadedness spotted the world for several seconds until she reminded herself to breathe. Her face felt slick with tears. With one hand extended, she practiced opening and closing the fingers, accepting and rejecting, accepting and rejecting. The door opened behind her. Spoon eased into a sit, thrusting his injured knee forward and laying it across the steps. He rested his crutches next to him, then put an arm around her shoulders. She leaned into him, feeling his solid body pressing back against her. He didn't give any ground, and she needed that right now. The comfort of stability. I used to get so excited about coming home, she said. Not so much anymore. There's a reception at my dad and stepmom's house after this. Then we can change our New Orleans flight to tomorrow. You can still make your interview. Do you reckon we should wait on that? I can call the recruiter and tell them now's not the right time. She considered the next few days spent in Denver, visiting old friends. They would goad her into smiling, mourn with her, fill the minutes with awkward silence, and offer her beer and weed to console her. I think he would want us to go, not wallow in it here, surrounded by all this gloom. He sighed. We can talk about New Orleans later. Do you want to have a chat about what happened back in there? That wasn't him in that box. She adjusted her dress and pulled her hair back. Forty-eight is too young for a heart attack. But maybe it's better this way, you know, how he went, instead of all slow and shriveled in a hospital bed, or unable to move half his face from a stroke. I wouldn't want to remember him that way. He kept silent, only leaned close and kissed her temple. Nothing he could have said would have made her feel better. Still, she felt grateful to have him sit with her, not offering advice or trying to fix her pain. Then she considered his question. How must she have appeared to everyone else, fleeing like a woman on fire? 
Okay, I shouldn't have run out, but I'm not going to have an episode, if that's what that look is for. He averted his eyes. I'm just... She almost said sad, but that wasn't the correct word. Empty would be better, but that also didn't cover it. She approximated a smile and considered trying to reassure him, but any promises about her state were only lies, and she didn't want to do that to him. We can go back in now. Reagan and Spoon stood together, and she helped him place the crutches under his armpits. With each step toward the building, it seemed to move further away. She kept flashing on Dad's face and their last goodbye, six months ago at the Denver airport. He'd smiled, but with misty eyes because she was leaving for Texas yet again. Inside the building, two dozen people in various hues of black and gray populated the lobby. They ate finger foods and chatted in forlorn tones. Eyes trained on her, and she felt their judgment burrow into her skin. Her cousin Dalton sauntered toward them, hands in his pockets and a smirk across his gaunt face. He looked almost grown up in his black jacket and khakis, probably the nicest outfit in his wardrobe. What's up, cuz? How you holdin' up? I'm okay, she said. Dalton flicked a chin toward Spoon. This the boyfriend? Didn't get a chance to say hi before. Spoon offered his hand. How are you going? I'm Spoon. Dalton extended his bony arm, the cuffed sleeve of his shirt riding up to expose his tattoos. What kind of name is Spoon? It's a nickname. What kind of name is Dalton? Dalton chuckled and elbowed Reagan in the ribs. Nice, I like this one. I'm guessing by the crazy accent that you're British or something. I'm from Melbourne, Spoon said. Dalton cocked his head. Melbourne? Yeah, Spoon said. That's in Australia. Across the room, Reagan's stepmother Anne was leaning against a window, shards of light making her black dress sparkle. She held a flask in one hand and a stack of stapled papers in the other. She flicked through them, her mouth dropping open by increasing degrees with each page turn. Anne slipped the flask into her purse and strode across the room, her eyes locked on Reagan. The look of disbelief morphed into anger as Anne waved the papers in front of her stepdaughter's face. The attorney dropped this off. What is it? Reagan said. Anne sneered. Just an official record of the nothing we have now. She snatched the envelope from her purse and pushed it into Reagan's stomach. The attorney gave me this, too. It's for you. Reagan opened the envelope and unfolded the paper inside, and her eyes jumped to Dad's handwritten signature at the bottom of the typed note. She read from the words, Dearest Reagan, at the top. The letter requested she carry Dad's ashes into Rocky Mountain National Park and release them into Lake Nanita. What kind of sick person picks out his own urn? Anne said before spinning on her heels, returning to her spot next to the window and disappearing back into her flask. Even in mourning, Anne could still be quite a bitch. Reagan's eyes unfocused as the words swam on the page. Taking Dad's ashes into the park they both loved to say goodbye seemed like something she should do, but also seemed like there might not be enough tissues in the world to handle all the sobbing that would come with it. She might have to start buying Kleenex stock. Dalton snatched the letter out of Reagan's hand and scanned it, 
mouthing the words as he read. You're going camping? Reagan and Spoon both looked at his crutches and the brace covering his knee. Spoon's lips parted as his eyebrows crept up his forehead. Looking from the letter to Spoon and back, she knew what she had to do. Despite the burden, doing this would make it okay. This letter held the path to closing the empty casket. It's okay. I can do this alone. I should do this alone. What about New Orleans? Spoon said. I thought you still wanted to go. If you need to go, go on without me. I have to stay and do this. A buzzing sound. Dalton slinked away from the circle to squint at his phone. Then he shot a glance at Reagan. He cupped a hand around the illuminated screen, shielding it from her. Dalton had a secret. Excuse me, he said. I'll be right back. 11.15 a.m. Dalton Darby exited the stuffy funeral parlor and rounded the corner toward a blue Chevy Tahoe idling beside the curb. His pulse quickened as the passenger side window rolled down. A mist of cigarette smoke billowed, spread, then evaporated into the air. When Dalton looked through the open window, he didn't recognize the driver, but he knew the heavyset passenger with the banana-shaped scar under his right eye. He wore dark sunglasses, his face still and expressionless. The large man sucked in a deep breath. They get the will? Dalton fumbled in his pocket for a pack of smokes. As he lit one, the anticipation soothed his nerves before he even had a chance to inhale. Anne just about shit herself. I didn't get to see the will, but she made it sound like there's no inheritance. The man grunted, which sent a shudder through Dalton. Your uncle always was a slippery bastard. I'm not all that surprised he'd play it this way, but I can deal with that. Anything else? No, not really, Dalton said. Then his head twitched when he remembered the envelope. He did leave a letter for her, though. The man rotated toward Dalton, making the leather on the seat squeak. He took off his sunglasses. Reagan? Dalton nodded. Did you see this letter? Uncle Mitch wants her to take his ashes into Rocky Mountain and dump them in some lake. The man sat back, leaning against the headrest and narrowing his eyes at the roof of the truck. He fingered the wiry goatee protruding from his chin. Slippery bastard. It's on the trail somewhere and he's stashed it, thinking we won't realize he's sending her out there to get it. Dalton stepped forward, placing his hands on the side of the car. He only half understood what the man was talking about, but wasn't about to admit it. Yeah, that's what I think too. What do you want me to do? That's it for this episode of the Thriller Fiction Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and visit jimheskett.com for more info and free thriller books.